It is the beginning of a new series, and uh, we're going to be studying the book of Colossians. And so if you are in a life group, we have a study guide for you that you can pick up today. Everybody who's in a life group, well, anybody can pick them up. Um, And this is the first four chapters, and I'll be doing the next five uh, in a couple of weeks. But I couldn't get through them all in time for this week. So there's a study guide for you to pick up, which you'll be going through with your life group leaders uh, or on your own. And the book that we have for Colossians is not actually a book on Colossians. This is very different than our last book. Instead, what I have is J.I. Packer's Concise Theology. And I'm going to be picking a chapter or two for each week that aligns with the topic that we are studying in Colossians that week. And they are very short. When I say concise theology, it's very concise. It was either this or Grudem's Systematic Theology, which is about 1,500 pages. And so you will be glad to know that these chapters are literally a page long. That is it. One page. We couldn't get all of these books in for this week, and so the first chapter that I have you reading, we have a photocopy of, which you can pick up with your study guide. But I would like every family to have a concise theology book, and so there's a method to my madness. The reason I've made this our study book is because I want every household to have one of these books. And even though I'm only giving you one chapter to read, what I'm hoping is is that you'll open up to the chapter on, say, uh, you know, prophets or whatever, and he's talking about prophecy, and then you'll be, you know, sitting there in the washroom or wherever you're doing your reading, and you'll realize it says, oh, salvation. Well, what does he have to say about that? Oh, election. Election. What's that? Regeneration. What's that? And you'll find it very hard to put down after a little while because Packer does an incredibly concise job of summarizing theology. So that's the new series, Colossians. There's a study guide. There's a book. It's all coming your way, and hopefully you can get started this week. And I know that everybody gets out of sync at some point, so if you don't start this week, that's fine. Start next week. If you miss a week along the way, that's fine. Just keep going. And uh, we'll get through Colossians together. So this morning, um, I don't know whether they've got that going back there or not. They're still working on picking up my feed. Well, what can I do about that? Can I do anything up here about that? seems to be the morning of technological challenges this morning. Um, I'm going to do this. I'm sorry. I'm just going to take one second and see if I can fix it for them. Is it on the feed? Oh, it's on the feed. Okay, then I'm not going to change anything. You guys will sort out how to get it going, hopefully, on the feed or here. So, the book of Colossians, and if you want to turn to Colossians chapter 1 or tap there in your phone, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. The book of Colossians was written um, by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison in Rome, uh, which he references now and then through the letter, talks about being in prison. And it's roughly 60 to 61 AD at the time of this writing. It's written to a church in the city of Colossae. Uh, The citizens of the city of Colossae are called Colossians, and thus the name of the letter. Um, Colossae is uh, in modern-day Turkey. 
It's a fairly large city, and it's in the same region as other famous churches like Laodicea, he talks about in chapter 4, verse 15. Uh, Paul actually recommends that this church should pass this letter on to the church of Laodicea, and that the church of Colossae should get the Laodicean letter and read it, and that's a letter that the Holy Spirit didn't preserve for us, but Paul apparently wrote to the churches at Laodicea as well. And... uh, And so there is letters that were written that were passed around from church to church. The church in the city of Colossae was not founded by Paul. Paul went on a great missionary journey. He founded many churches, but not in the city of Colossae. He was never there. He never met these Christians. Uh, We see in verse 7 that the initial gospel message was brought by Epaphras, who was a native of the city, it says in 412. And the church held several other notable people that we run across in Scripture. It was probably a house church or a collection of house churches, one of which met partly in Philemon's house, uh, who we have a letter to, and who was the former owner of the slave Onesimus, who Paul says is one of their own. So Onesimus is from the city of Colossae. Philemon lived there, and the church was in his house. So Colossae is a typical city of the Roman Empire at this time. It's very multicultural. It has a a variety of European and Middle Eastern Jewish populations mixing with indigenous population of Asia Minor. It's near a center of worship for the mother goddess Sibyl and Dionysus, and Artemis worship was common. Excavations at the site reveal that astrology and astral worship and books of magic were common and prevalent which makes the exhortations and encouragements that we're going to see from Paul in the early part of this letter very appropriate. As we understand the city of Colossae, we understand the church of the Colossians, we understand the context in which Paul is writing into. In brief, the church of Colossae was very much like almost every other church in history. It's like our own. It was a church that was an island or an outpost of faith in God in the midst of a sea of battling ideologies, philosophies, and religions. If you were shopping around for a religion or for a way of life, you had your pick of them in Colossae. Now, we're going to see shortly that the church itself, the church of the Colossians, was quite healthy. Paul doesn't have any rebuke for them. He doesn't seem to be putting out any immediate fires in the context of the church. Uh, It's full of faithful believers. It's founded on a true gospel that was brought by Epaphras. It's bearing good fruit. All of which brings us to the initial question and the topic for today. Why is Paul writing this letter? And why is this letter preserved for us? In other words, what message does the Holy Spirit have for a decent church with a bunch of typical Christians doing pretty well in a typical urban center? Because Paul doesn't have any issues to deal with at Colossae. Paul writing in some of his other letters is a little more understandable. The church in Corinth is going off the rails and needs correction. The church in Galatia is coming apart at the seams with arguments over what the gospel is and the place of the law and Jewish tradition. Revelation 3 tells us that the church at Laodicea was cooling off, becoming lukewarm and indifferent to the love of Christ. But the church at Colossae is doing well. So what is Paul's big emphasis for a church that has a good foundation in the gospel, has a reputation for being faithful, and is walking pretty well in the way of Christ? 
Well, whatever Paul's message is and the Holy Spirit wants to impart, I want to know what it is. Because Paul wrote it and the Holy Spirit preserved it. Just for typical doing okay churches and Christians without any big flaws, but who need to keep growing in the right direction. That's the letter that Paul wrote. It's like, you're a good church, Colossae. Well, what then do you want us to do, Paul? Well, Paul answers that question. And if we keep reading, we'll see the answer that Paul gives them. Now, keeping in mind we spent 51 weeks in the Gospel of Matthew a year ago, we're going to whip through Colossians in record time, just eight or nine weeks. And even though I'm going to focus on just a few verses each time, I still want to read the whole book and let the whole of Scripture and the whole context sink in as we begin in each teaching. So I'm going to read to you Colossians 1, 1 to 14, even though I'm just going to focus on kind of verses 9, 8, 9, 10 kind of area. Now, let's just pray before we read God's word. Father God, thank you for the book of Colossians. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who writes to us. Thank you that he writes a letter to a doing okay church, not just ones that seem to be falling apart. And so, Lord, help us as what we hope as sort of a doing okay church ourselves, what we need to learn to do as just everyday Christians in a regular city that has lots of stuff going on. What would Paul, what would your Holy Spirit teach us in this letter? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Colossians 1, 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, and it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Well, There's a certain structure of thought that goes on here in this letter. The first is in verses 1 to 3. We have an introduction and a greeting. I see it up there, but I don't see it here. Is it just black? (laughs) That's odd. Okay. Um, So the first verses are verse 1 to 3, introduction and greeting. There you go. And then in verses 4 to 8, we have the seed of the gospel. And then in verses 9 to 14, 
he outlines, or Paul outlines, the importance of knowledge and the kind of knowledge that bears fruit. And there's, there's just two things I want to briefly highlight in the first eight verses, and then I'm going to spend, as I said, most of our time in verses 9, 10, and 11. So first of all, we have the greeting and the gospel. And what I want to notice here, as I mentioned earlier, is that Paul is very encouraging towards this church. This is a church in pretty good shape. In his introduction to the letter, he gives at least three expressions of confidence that he has in them as a family of Christians. He says that they are faithful brothers. He says that they have love for their fellow believers, who he calls saints. And he says that they are bearing fruit and increasing in their Christian maturity. And I want to be specifically aware of the context of these expressions of confidence, the the source that Paul attributes to their love and to their faithfulness and to their hope and to their fruitfulness. He says that he heard or that they learned of all this in the word of the truth, the gospel, in verse 5. That's what's bearing fruit among them because it came to them in the gospel. And so Paul is very encouraging here. He has got expressions of confidence for them. And there's three time references that Paul expresses here. He says that you heard this before in verse 5, and then he says, since the day that you heard it and understood, and then in verse 6, just as you learned it in the past tense from Epaphras. So it's three verses, but for Paul, it's actually just one sentence, if you actually read it uh, properly in just sentence form. In one sentence, Paul stresses three times, you heard this truth of the gospel, it's at working in you since you heard and understood it, and you learned it from Epaphras. So there is a point in time that the gospel came to this church, these people in Colossae, and it has been bearing fruit for them in many different ways that Paul encourages them in. And so there's an intentional sort of image that Paul is placing here of the gospel as sort of a a knowledge seed. It's something that was planted at a certain point in time through hearing, and then it grows and it bears fruit. This is the language that Paul uses. It increases. Paul says it's increasing and bearing fruit throughout the whole world and also bearing fruit in the church of Colossae. And so in very shorthand, Paul's also giving us a glimpse of the multidimensional way in which the gospel grows and the power of the gospel knowledge. It's bearing fruit in the the world. That is, the the gospel is growing the church, and people are coming to them. It's convincing them. It's rescuing people. It's increasing the kingdom of God numerically. But he says the gospel is also maturing and transforming and redeeming the individual Christians and churches in the fruit of love and hope and faith. So Paul says this gospel knowledge comes to people, And if it comes to them and it's a good gospel that comes faithfully and they accept it and hear it and understand it, it grows and it's fruitful. This is how the gospel works. It's a seed that grows and grows and grows in many dimensions. And we know that Jesus said in Matthew 13 that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. That's what the gospel's like. It's what the kingdom of God is like. It's a tiny seed that you plant, but then it grows and grows and grows. The significance of Paul describing the fruitfulness of the gospel knowledge that Epaphras has planted is 
that he's not suggesting that Colossians need to learn anything else that's distinctly new. In fact, as you go through this letter, Paul's going to spend a good part of it stressing that Colossians should not learn anything except the gospel. The gospel knowledge that Epaphras has planted is the source of their fruitfulness and growth. The gospel plays itself out in every area of their Christian life. We think the gospel is a small thing, a simple thing, that you know we use it once just to tell people about Jesus, or, or they use it once, or we use it once just to become a Christian. And, and once we become a Christian, we're kind of done with the gospel at that point. But in fact, the gospel meditated on and thought about and considered and dwelt upon and applied to our life the way Paul's going to apply it in Colossians here. The gospel is just a seed that grows up into trunks and branches and leaves and fruitfulness. That's my theme or that's my contention of what Paul is wanting to teach the Colossians. And you say, okay, Mr. Preacher, where are you getting all that from in this text? Well, let's keep reading into our main verses for today. Remember, the, the context is we have a good church here. It's doing pretty well. They have the seed of the gospel planted well by Epaphras. And so what do they do then as just good church, good Christians doing okay, sit back and coast? Is that what Paul says? No, that's not what Paul says. In verse 9 he says, and so... Because this is true about the gospel, that it's bearing fruit and growing in all of these ways, and so, so because you're on the right track and have a good start in the gospel here, here is my, he actually says our, because he's got Timothy there and he's other people praying with him. He says, here's our prayer for you. He says, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So Paul essentially says to this church that's doing okay, to these Christians that have a good start in the gospel, He says, I want you to lean into knowledge. I want you to lean into growing in wisdom and understanding about God. God is an infinite person and thus is a fathomless ocean for you to explore. Just as the gospel is a seed that keeps on growing into a magnificent tree, God is a topic you will never exhaust. But the key here is, if you want to keep bearing fruit, Paul phrases it here as walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, then here is the thing, Colossians, you need to keep learning. You need to keep expanding and increasing your knowledge of God. Because knowledge is important. And as we work through the first half of this letter, we're going to see again and again the importance that Paul places on knowledge. Increasing our understanding, exercising our mind in the direction of God. In addition to these verses in 9 and 10, he goes on in verse 21 to say, You used to be hostile in mind. In verse 26, he says, The mystery hidden for the ages is now revealed. In in chapter 2, verse 2, he says that we have the riches of full assurance of understanding. In chapter 2, 3, he says that in Christ are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In 2, 7, he says, Be built up as you were taught. In 2, 8, he says, Don't be taken captive by philosophy. In 2, 18, he says, Not to be fooled by people without reason. In 2, 23, he says, Don't be deceived by things that have an appearance of wisdom. Because he wants us to have true wisdom. 
And so Paul is saying here in the early part of this letter to a good church doing okay, to these reasonably well-behaved Christians, the job of every Christian after their first encounter with the gospel, especially if it was a powerful and effective encounter with the gospel, is that these Colossians are meant to lean into the pursuit of true knowledge about God. That's every Christian's job. Every Christian's job is to say, God is a fathomless topic. He is a person without end. I can devote my life to knowing more and more and more about God and his gospel. In other words, Paul says to these Colossians, turn your brain on, keep your brain on, open your Bible, keep it open. In Romans 12, Paul says it this way. He says in 12.2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In his letter to the church in Corinth, which is not a church that is off to a good start at all, his encouragement to them was the same. Lean into the knowledge of God. A top 10 verse of mine in the whole Bible is in chapter 2 of of 2 Corinthians. He says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So Paul Paul says to these Corinthians, same line of thought, the only thing on earth that really knows your mind, who really knows you, is your spirit. You're the only person who really knows the inner you, right? That makes sense. But, he says, connect these dots, Christian. God says that he has given us his spirit so that we can really understand the things of God that he shares with us. It's like, right? God has given us his spirit And God's spirit understands the inner things of God, and he's given us his spirit so that we can actually know and understand the inner things of God. There's nothing about the Christian faith that's mindless or unintellectual or thoughtless or simply emotive or only spiritual, whatever people mean by that. Paul says here in this letter to the Colossians that it is important that these Christians who have a good start in the gospel press into knowing more about God. It's why I want every household to have J.I. Packer's Concise Theology. Because it's a very tiny book on an infinite subject. (laughs) The knowledge of God. Which is of utmost importance to Christians. The Apostle Paul tells us and the Holy Spirit has told us. But there's two implied conditions to that knowledge that I want us to look at. The first thing about this knowledge of God is that Paul wants it to be knowledge that is consistent with the gospel. Paul wants these Christians to increase in knowledge, but it's knowledge consistent with the gospel already preached to them by Epaphras. That is, Paul does not want the Colossians to grow in knowledge of God that's merely abstract or speculative knowledge, but he wants them to grow in knowledge of God that is true. Paul says that the Colossians have heard the word of the truth, and that they understood the grace of God in truth. The emphasis here by Paul is, you've got the truth. There's a lot of so-called knowledge about God out there in the world that is not true. 
is just abstract knowledge. It's just speculative knowledge. The job of a Christian is to grow in true knowledge of God as he's revealed himself by his gospel, that is, through the person and life and work of his son Jesus Christ and delivered to us faithfully in his scriptures. True knowledge of God has its roots in the gospel and in the Bible, and it flows from the revelation of God. But false knowledge, on the other hand, has its roots in human speculation. As I mentioned, the city of Colossae was full of abstract and speculative philosophies and religions and thoughts about God. It had idol worship, consumerism, emperor or political worship, etc. All of these things were happening in Colossae. Our own culture and world is full of them still today. Really, the exact same things that were going on in Colossae are going on in our world. There's all kinds of different things to worship out there. All kinds of idolatry, consumerism, ideology, philosophy. But maybe even more powerful is our own internal speculation about God. Because every human struggles with this. We have our own ideas of what we want God to be like. And so we invent a God that we prefer rather than the God that actually is. Like how many late night, possibly drunken conversations did you have with friends in university that started with, maybe God is like... Or maybe the universe is. Or I think everyone was put on the planet in order to. Or what if this? You know, maybe, I think, what if? Those are really solid foundations to build your life on. You know, as if, you know, thousands of years of human history was just waiting for that night in your dorm room for you and your drunken friends to discover the truth of the universe. Not likely. Everything you thought was really brilliant has already been thought before. Entire books, philosophies, false religions, and even science textbooks have been written on pure speculation and personal preference to create a God more appealing to ourselves or to eliminate the God that we think is a nuisance to our self-sovereignty. There is a ton of speculative, abstract knowledge about God, well, knowledge, (laughs) guesses about God out there. But Paul says, base it on truth. It needs to be knowledge consistent with the gospel, not speculation, not preference. Paul says of his own preaching in 1 Corinthians 2.2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. In other words, all I taught from was the gospel and nothing else. But then it's interesting because he goes on just a few verses later to say in verses 6 to 7, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. You see, there's a pattern here of Christian knowledge. You start with the seed of the gospel. That's all you need is Christ and him crucified. And you keep digging into the good news of that gospel. You keep going. You keep growing. And among the mature, it imparts wisdom, real knowledge, not fake knowledge of this doomed age, but the wisdom of God that comes from God. So that's the first thing. This knowledge is consistent with the gospel, and it grows up from the gospel and from the revelation of God. But then secondly, the kind of knowledge that Paul wants for these Colossians and for us is knowledge that bears fruit, that makes things change. Paul says that this knowledge and wisdom that we have causes us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in verse 10, and that it imparts power, endurance, patience, and joy. 
We know we are growing in true knowledge of God when it bears fruit and we see evidence of walking worthily. Speculative knowledge does not bear fruit in our walk with God. Paul's being encouraging, so he's stating it in the positive here. He's saying that if you have this knowledge and wisdom, you will walk in a manner worthy. But just as often we see this in ourselves or in other people, not in the positive, although we do see that. We see people, you know Christians, who are faithfully reading their Bible, going to church in a small group, leaning into knowledge about God, and their walk with God is very evident in their life. But unfortunately, we also see it in the negative. You go ahead and substitute your own preferences about God. Substitute your own desires for what you think you want his word to say. And then just watch how fast your walk deteriorates. And sadly, we've all seen Christians who abandon reading the Bible, who stop coming to church, who avoid accountability with other Christians, who suddenly have weird ideas about what they think the Bible says or doesn't say or how it applies to their life. And inevitably, their life is either already off the rails Or they've fallen into a ditch very soon, and they're drifting, or they're even running hard in the wrong direction. Paul says to these believers, this great little church in Colossae that's off to a great start, he says, keep your mind on God, keep learning more about God, keep leaning into the knowledge of God, and it will bear fruit in your life, it will keep you from straying off the path, it will keep you out of the ditches, it will keep you on the rails. He says, power, endurance, patience, joy. Does anybody want those? I do. I want all of those. I want power. I want endurance. I want patience. I want joy. And Paul says, then, if you want those, know God. Increase in your knowledge of God. Meditate on God. Dig into his truth and his wisdom. But this is also a warning against pure intellectualism. There are also Christians out there who, sadly as well, seem to know a lot about God, but it doesn't bear fruit in their life. They really just know facts about God. They don't know God. Paul is opposed here, evident in this text, to a lifeless intellectualism that has no fruit. Paul says this knowledge of God that I'm talking about, that you lean into, it should affect your walk. It should affect change. It's based on the gospel. You don't need to go anywhere else. The revelation of God in the life and purpose and outcomes of Jesus Christ as we have recorded in Scripture and all that we have recorded about God in Scripture is enough for you. He says that's where your knowledge comes from, but it's knowledge that has to bear fruit. It's not just a cold intellectualism that does not transform. True knowledge of God is both intellectual and volitional. That is, it's understanding God and it's acting on that understanding. It's knowledge put into action. Martin Luther described how to make a mature Christian. And he says it requires oratio, meditatio, and tenatio. And Martin Luther wrote in Latin, so sadly we have no idea what he meant. No, I'm just kidding. Isn't knowledge great? We do know what he meant. It means prayer, study, obedience. Luther said, you want to make a mature Christian, it takes a ratio, meditatio, tenatio. Prayer, study, obedience. It's the trial of faithful obedience to what you learn. That's what he means. So Paul prays that the people would meditate on, that they would study God, that it would result in a challenge to live according to what they learn. Now, many Christians have 
very little knowledge of God. Many Christians don't even seem to desire knowledge of God. Maybe some Christians think it's unnecessary or somehow unspiritual to think too much about their faith, that theology and doctrine are for professors or pastors. And Paul says that's a bad sign. Paul says if you have a good start in the gospel and, and, and you have had this word of life and in truth imparted to you, that not pursuing knowledge of God is a shallow way of Christian living, and inevitably you will not walk faithfully and bear fruit. There's many Christians who want to just bypass knowledge and go straight to experience. They think that spiritual power and spiritual wisdom and insight comes from experiences and emotions that they have with God. But Paul says that spiritual power and wisdom come from knowledge of God. He says, in other words, it's the other way around. He says, if you want experiences of fruitfulness with God, then you have to know God. You need to know him, and you're able to know him because he's given you his spirit so that you can fathom the depths of God. He's given you his scripture to reveal himself to you. On the other hand, some Christians love to learn. They want to know doctrines and creeds, but not have it bear any fruit in their life. They have orthodoxy without orthopraxy. They have right knowledge without right practice, and that's not good either. But Paul puts it all together here in this text. He says, okay, church in Colossae, Epaphras planted the gospel in you. It was a good planting. It was a great start. And you guys are doing okay. I don't have any complaints against you. All I hear are good things. You are a good little church doing good things and bearing fruit. So Paul says, here's my prayer to a good church that's doing okay, full of just everyday Christians. A growing church, a maturing church, a gospel-centered church, Paul says, and his prayer is that they are a people that are engaging their minds in the study of God, consistent with and growing out of their knowledge of the gospel, rooted in his revelation, spiritual wisdom, bearing fruit in transformed lives, walking uprightly with power and patience, endurance and joy. That's what Paul says a church off to a good start should focus on. Press into knowledge of God because it only gets deeper and richer and wider and better the further you go. It is literally my job to study God as much as possible. And let me tell you how thankful I am for that job. You have an opportunity to join a life group. And I know it takes time out of your evening and it takes time out of your week. But you have hosts and leaders who want to help you study the knowledge of God. And Paul says here, as a great introduction to our life groups on Colossians, what everyday Christians and churches off to a good start should do is lean into knowing God the best you can know God. He wants you to know him. And knowing him has power to transform your life. And then Paul closes off this text with a summary of the good news of the gospel. It kind of sums it up for them at the end here of this text. And we're going to use the end of this text as our meditation on communion, or the start of it. It says in verse 12, "...giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you 
to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the good news. You can study what God has done for humanity for the rest of your life, and you'll never get to the end of it. And it'll just be the tip of the iceberg of who God is and all that he is and has planned for us. And we're going to spend time on this good news and this gospel later in the letter because Paul just can't basically stop himself at this point from bursting out into song and poetry when he gets to this part. And we're going to learn lots about how it's meant to transform our lives and work practically. God is the God who has saved us by the work of his son on the cross to rescue us, to redeem us, to forgive us our sins, and bring us into his kingdom. That is a God that every Christian, every person should want to know as well and as deeply as they possibly can. And we have the incredible privilege of spending our lives, having once begun with the gospel, to just get to know God better and better and better and better. And he's given us the minds and the spirit to do it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We're entering now into our time of communion when we get to just give you thanks for what you've done in the gospel. Father, I pray for all of those here who have heard the gospel and received it and trust entirely in you that this communion is such a special time for them, such a sweet time to be in touch with you, to meditate on you. And Father, I pray for those who have heard the gospel and have not yet received it, that this would even be the day that they say, I believe, I trust. This Jesus Christ, this good news that he has died on the cross for me and my sins, that I can have forgiveness, that my guilt can be lifted and I can be transferred into the kingdom of light. I pray that they would put their hope in you even today. But Father, as we come into communion, I just pray that you would be with us here, with us now, in your spirit, as you always are, and bless our time together in Christ's name. Amen.